0: We are so glad that you've joined us, and we hope this message is both encouraging and challenging to you. And we want to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday gatherings, and if you need to know more information about that, you can check us out at cornerstonerockwall.com. All right, so we are continuing in our series called Upside Down, which is a walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, so if you want to turn on your apps or open your Bibles and get yourself there, um... And as by way of illustration, as we get rolling with this, um, how many of you guys were, like Burger King fans? Burger, Burger anyone? Fast food's kind of gone away, right? So Burger King, right? So Burger King's around, been around a long time for a lot of t- a lot of years. In the '60s and '70s, they were like the primary rival to McDonald's. So McDonald's is kind of the was the big kid on the block, and then Burger King was one of the one of those that wanted to push and fight and kind of try and take them down. And does anyone remember the tagline that Burger King came up with? Like it came out in this 1974 but does anyone remember like kind of their big tagline the beef? Where's the beef? That was their commercial. I love those commercials. No, but they had a tagline that went along with that. Anyone remember it? Have it, Have it your way. There it is. Boom. Have it your way. Burger King. It's the only way, right? And what they were pushing against so McDonald's was like McDonald's whole selling point was, "Hey, you can go to a McDonald's anywhere and you know exactly what you're going to get." A soggy bun. A small patty, some diced onions, a dollop of whatever, right? Like you knew what you were gonna get. So McDonald's was specifically marketing themselves. It's like, hey, you it's safe, you can trust it. I don't care where you go, you're gonna get this. Burger King went the other direction. They said, no, 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 no. You can have it your way. Like you want onions? Get onions. You want extra onions? We'll throw some extra on there. You want pickles? Whatever you want. We will get we will build it because It's your burger. We'll give you whatever you want and however you want it. That was their thing, and it it fit. It worked because it fits this desire in us for individual expression. Like, I like my burgers this way. I want this out of things, right? It, It fits a very consumeristic model, which is you know, think about your world now. You walk into Five Guys and there's 700 things you got to choose from before they'll put your order together, right? Everything now is built as you go. You walk into Chipotle, you walk into Freebirds, right? It's all you choose, everything along the way. It's this consumer orientation. Like, I want things my way. I can do it the way I want it done, I can have things the way I want it to do. That's amazing for burgers and burritos. The problem is, is that it's invaded every area of our lives and our faith. And there's a reality that we live, we take this consumeristic mindset that we have and we've applied it to our faith and there is this thing in us that kind of wants Jesus our way. Like we want the version of Jesus we want. Like, oh, I, like the, I like gracious Jesus. I like a Jesus that has some grace and loves me no matter how messy I am you know, I don't, I, but I also like the wrath of Jesus, like, against other people. Like, I don't want it towards me, but I like it when God goes and he goes after those people, right? So there's this thing in us that wants Jesus our way, and it's really dangerous for us because many of Jesus's teachings, if, if you read your Bible, honestly, if you open it up and you read it, many of the teachings of Scripture are going to rub against that comfort. They're going to rub against those things inside of us. They're going to push and pull in areas, and I, it doesn't matter what side of the Spectrum you're on politically or philosophically or ideologically really doesn't matter. There's something to offend everybody in God's word, and there's something to offend everyone in Jesus's teaching, and it rubs against that. It's so like, and we've talked about this, right? It's, It's not just upside down to like the world around us. Like Jesus's ways are upside down to the world. Yeah, they are. They're also upside down in many ways to us as the church, and they're upside down to kind of the way like my heart's natural gravitational pull is, and and I say that because, like, I think, personally, I think that the the teaching we're going to walk through today might be the most difficult teaching in the whole Bible. It might be the thing that Jesus says that's the hardest thing for us to really kind of grab onto and go, okay, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus in this? Because it feels like it's totally opposed to everything we understand about who we are and what it means to follow, like, to live out our lives, it, it pulls, it's very offensive. Like, this idea will be very offensive to, in many ways, our American sensibilities of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, have it my way, right? Like, all of those things. Jesus' teaching is gonna tug against none of that. And the funny thing is, is the passage is really simple to understand and yet extremely difficult to embrace. Like, you're not gonna go like, oh, I don't understand, like, what's the Greek word? Like, like, you're not going to worry about that. But then seeing what Jesus says and then going, okay, now how does this change how I orient myself towards the world around me is going to be extremely difficult. And so I know I just prayed, but I want to pause again. And I want to give you a chance to pray. And just ask the Lord for ears to hear. So Jesus kept saying, like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That we as a people would have ears to hear whatever it is God wants to teach us. And that we would lay aside maybe some of our preconceived notions or or our own kind of like whatever it is inside of us and that we would literally lay it all at the feet of Jesus and go, okay, I just want to learn from you today. So I'm just going to be silent for a moment and this is a chance for you just to close your eyes and just ask the Lord to give you a heart that is tender and ears that are open. So let's do that for a second. father we do ask you for ears to hear hearts that are tender that we might take you for who you are and for what you say and not try and conform you into the way we want you to be but trust you for who you are knowing that you are a good and loving father and your ways are always better than our ways we give you this time in your son's name amen okay by means of setup from that setup So I wanna talk a little bit about justice in the Bible. So there's basically two forms of justice that you see throughout scripture. Um, one you can call retributive or punitive justice, and a good example of that. And so this is like your typical eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth kind of justice, right? This is the one that, when we think of justice, is probably the one that springs to mind the most. So Exodus 21, 12 through 14, this is as, as uh, God is giving the law, right? He says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it, was, if it is d- not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are flee- to flee to a place I will designate. It's called a city of refuge. Um, But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So God has clearly designated throughout Scripture what we would call retributive and repunitive justice. That there is is a reality of consequences for actions, and God has set up his law in such a way that there would be recompense. And there's a reason for that. It it happens because it, it helps for order and balance, right? So what it does is it provides safety and security and order and balance in the world within those who would be following the Lord, right? Um, And it also restrains evil impulses, like when you know that if I get really mad and I kill this guy, it's probably going to come back and bite me, that, that there's a restraining effect. Again, like we've talked about with the speed limit sign, it doesn't change hearts, but it does restrain, it has an impact, there's a value to it. Um, The second type of justice that we see in Scripture is called restorative justice. And Proverbs 31 is one example of 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Right? So this idea of caring for those who are marginalized and minimized, for those who, who might not have, making sure that, that everyone in the community is taken care of, right? Like in the, in, within the, the, the family. And for Israel, that was their specific thing. Their mandate was to care for one another. And then out of that, be able to care for those in need around them. And what, what, what um, restorative justice offers is harmony and peace and unity, right? And so they're, they're two sides of the same coin, so in, I really truly believe that what God has done is he's established them and designed them initially to work in alignment or in concert with one another. That both restorative justice and retributive justice are designed to work together in order for a healthy, flourishing community. The problem is they don't align in a broken world. And, and, and our tendency is to pit one against the other. And we see one is justice and one is not, or vice versa, right? And we, rather than seeing them as two halves of a coin, we see them in opposition to one another. And Jesus has been teaching us this, this way of following him and what it looks like to be part of his kingdom, right? We've said that this, in many ways the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be part of my kingdom, my community, the world that I have designed. And this is what it's gonna look like for you as you follow me in a world that's gonna be vastly different than the world um, around you, that's gonna be at odds with, the, with you and the times gonna be at odds with yourself. And so how are we to orient ourselves when it comes to those who are opposed to us? Like how are we to orient ourselves when, when inevitably as we live in this world, we're gonna meet opposition. We're gonna have people who are against us. We're gonna have challenges and struggles and enemies. And then how do we follow Jesus in the midst of that and what's his his heart? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so look down at verse 38. I'm going to jump in and read it for you. Starting at 38. Again, Jesus is doing this, you've heard it said, but I say to you, it's the pattern we've seen all the way up until now. You've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the, other one, turn the other to him also. As for one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pause there. So Jesus says, like you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? That retributive justice, and we talked about that, Exodus 21, and it's, it's all over the, the, the Old Testament especially, but um, and, and what it did is it establishes that value of human life, the seriousness of, seriousness of what it means to damage the image of God. Human beings are made in God's image. God has said, like, it's, this is a big deal to, 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 to not damage them. And so if, if, you, if you poke out an eye, you should lose an eye, right? If you knock out a tooth, you should lose a tooth, right? There's a sense of equity in justice. And Jesus says, you've heard that. Like, you know that. And he says 39 through 42, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And then he gives five examples. And, and that word for resist is this idea of don't set yourself up in opposition. It's almost like taking a fighting stance, towards those opposed to you. Like as if you're like, okay, what do you want to do? You want to go? You want to go? He's saying, don't do that. Don't set yourself up in opposition to those who are evildoers. And that word for evildoers is really as broad as it possibly can be. And the best way you could kind of really describe it for us would be like, don't set yourself in opposition to bad people. Like don't just set yourself up to be opposed to everyone who's bad, immoral, people who would pursue wrongdoing He's like, don't do that. Instead, here's example one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. Now, let me be clear. Like, we're not talking about physical violence in this. So Jesus isn't advocating that, hey, if someone's beating you up, just let them beat you up. The idea of slapping someone on the cheek would be akin to like, a, um, uh, like a, 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 an insult, a shameful, like a shame-producing insult. Um, like, you yeah, remember like old movies, like the two the guys are going to duel and one takes a glove and slaps the guy on the face? Like, that's the image, right? It's this idea. So it, it isn't advocating violence. Jesus isn't saying it's okay to get yourself beat up. But what he is saying is like, hey, if someone's insulting you, if, if someone is, 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 is shaming you, don't slap back, don't chirp back at them, don't trade insults. Instead, take it. In our, in our modern culture, this probably applies mostly to social media posts. I know, I didn't like the passage either. <laughs> right? Hey, if someone insults you, if someone comes at you, don't just turn around and elevate it by coming back at them. Don't set yourself in opposition to them. Instead, if they insult you, turn them the other cheek. All right. Yeah, some of that's probably true. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. In other words, don't, don't, don't resist. Don't, like, fight the desire to defend and retaliate. It doesn't say if you're right or if you're wrong. It just says don't resist. So if someone's in opposition to you and they're going to sue you and they're going to take your stuff from you, don't, rather than just give here, I'm going to not resist you and actually I'm going to be generous with you. And take, take the coat, too. Like if you're willing to try and take my shirt, you can have my coat as well. Be generous. Offer them more than what they're even trying to gain from you. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two. I remember, these, these are people living under Roman occupation, like intense Roman occupation. And it was regular that a Roman soldier could grab, on to, grab someone and say, hey, carry my stuff. And they would have to legally carry it for a mile. And Jesus is saying, no, it's like, don't just carry it a mile, carry it two miles. Like, be, be sacrificial. Volunteer to go a second mile. Set aside your sense of fairness and like, well, that's not fair and this isn't okay. Like, set that aside and be generous. And he says, give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow. We all know this guy, right? Hey, man, can I borrow your mower? I'm never going to see it again, am I? Like, we all know those people. Hey, can I, can I get 20 bucks? Yeah, I'll pay you back tomorrow. No, it's cool, man. Just keep it because I'm, I'm not going to see it, right? And he's saying, hey, don't resist that person, but, but be generous. Be charitable. Be willing to risk losing what you think is yours for the sake of people around you. Here's what I think it kind of shows us in this idea of an upside-down justice, is the way of Jesus values generosity over justification. I see your faces. I didn't like this either when I studied it. It creates a lot of tension in me. I'm not a fan of what Jesus is saying here because I have a deeply seated sense of personal justice and righteousness. How dare they? Like They don't know what I do. It's like I have that in me. But I, I can't read this and take Jesus at his word and not see what he's saying. Again, not difficult to understand. Really difficult to go, okay, what does this mean for my life and how I follow him and how I love those around me? The way of Jesus values generosity over justification, similar to the previous things we've talked about, right? Murder versus anger. Not murdering someone is not the win. What do you do when you're angry with your brother? We talked about adultery versus lust, right? I say, hey, if you look at a woman with lustfully, you've already taken that step into adultery. Like you've, you've already jumped the shark. Last week, Chris talked about divorce versus being committed in relationships, right? Like, it's not about like where's my line where I'm allowed to get a divorce. No, no, no. Being covenant committed to your spouse. Give them your whole heart, your whole life, right? Like, Jesus is setting the bar far above the law. Way above where we would want. We want just a clean, nice, tidy, like, tell me what I can and can't do. And Jesus is going, no, no, no it goes way higher than that. He came to fulfill the law, to complete it. So the idea of, of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is really the lowest bar for Jesus. He's saying, go this, like, my ways go far beyond that. It calls us to go beyond the law's expectations, to live generously, sacrificial, graciously. That isn't to ignore justice. But it is a call for us to order or reorder our values and how we value justice. And do we value being justified more than we value loving and caring for and leading others towards Jesus? Because again, he's talking about evildoers. We're not talking about brothers and sisters. We're talking about those outside of the faith and the opportunities that we have to love those. And that a willingness to set aside our desire of self-justification and sacrifice our personal rights for the sake of Jesus and His kingdom. Now, how the heck do we do that? <laughs> That's, that seems like a horrible idea. I think part of it is believing that Jesus is just, and trusting that He really is just, that He's in control. But I don't have to justify myself because, like, He's in full control and fully loving at all times. I can lose things, and I'm not really losing anything because Jesus is greater. He's bigger. There's nothing that he can't take care of in my life. Like, do I really have that kind of a view of God? Is he that big for me? Is he so big that someone could say, like, I'm taking that from you. I'm taking, I'm suing you for that. And I'll be like, cool, take this too. Like, it reveals in my heart how small God is. Like, my God is tiny. Because I'm like, no, that's a horrible idea. Tell you what, Jesus, here's what we'll do. I'll do it for you. Like, I know you, you want me to, like, I can be, I'll, I'll, I'll bring justice. Like, I can do it. I'll put a cape on, like put an S on my shirt. Like, I can be the one to bring justice for you. But that's not what he's calling us to do. But that belief that Jesus is right and in control and will meet my needs and care for me, like, that's, that's fundamental to it. It's fundamental to us following him in this way. That I don't need to trade insult for insult. I don't need to hold on to what I think is mine. Because my rights aren't mine anyways. They've been given to me by Jesus. Look, there isn't a breath in your lungs that isn't a gift given to you by the creator of all things. It's not yours anyways. And the more I embrace that, the more I come from a posture of like, Lord, everything I have is yours anyways. The breath in my lungs, the house that I live in, the car that I drive, like my freedom that I have in this country, like all these things are yours. Again, it doesn't mean that I don't fight for what is right. It doesn't mean that I don't vote my conscience. It doesn't mean that I don't stand for those who are being marginalized and hurt. It doesn't mean any of those things, but what it does do is it changes my disposition. It changes my heart and the way I approach it. And when we live this way, what we do is we model Jesus and display his power. Because Jesus, when he was accused and beaten, he didn't respond He didn't fight back. He didn't didn't justify himself before the Roman authority or before the Jewish authority. He didn't. He was silent. We have centuries and centuries of the the church following those ways of Jesus. There's a a follower of Jesus named Polycarp who some believe was a disciple of John. And Polycarp was gonna be arrested and then burned at the stake. And tradition goes that when they came to arrest Polycarp to take him to his death. He ordered a meal for everybody, all of his captors. He just ordered a meal. said, guys, let's eat. And then he requested an hour to pray. And then he took two hours to pray. And it's said that one of his captors were like, why are, why are we doing this to a man this good? Like, why, how could we do this? And then ultimately he was led to his death. And there's a lot of traditions around his death that may or may not be true. But the point is, is that like when faced with inevitable death, what did he do? He went the extra mile. He made a meal, or he had a meal made. He, he loved his enemies, which we're going to get to in a second. And what better way can we be salt and light than that? You think that's a bad way to work? We've got more to go. <laughs> Let's pick it up in verse the Verse 43 you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother and sister, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You've heard it said, again, here we go back to Jesus, like the pointing to the law. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, loving your neighbor is in Leviticus 19. It's pretty clear. The idea of hating your enemy, there's no biblical, like there's no Old Testament law that says hate your enemy. But it was definitely a cultural thought process. Like there was definitely a sense in Jewish culture that we love, our, we love our neighbors, but we hate our enemies. And again, like when Jesus is saying this, what's pop, what would pop naturally into the mind of a first century Jew is Rome. In the same way that Babylon oppressed us and the Assyrians per, uh, oppressed us and all these different nations have oppressed us Jews over the years, now it's Rome and they're our enemy. And so it would be a very clear, like it would be a clear picture of who they're talking about. They're not thinking about the guy that cut them off in traffic or anything. They're thinking about the fact that they are living as an occupied people who are being oppressed, violently oppressed. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now look, I spent a lot of time on the Greek words in this passage because I was looking for an out. (laughs) And unfortunately, I couldn't find one. Loving your enemies is what they would call an active imperative in the Greek, which is this idea of being proactively loving towards your enemies. The word for love, I was really hopeful that it wasn't going to be the one that it was. It's agape. It's covenantal love. It's, it's the love that, that, G, that Paul uses to describe Jesus' love for the church and for his people. It's a love that Christians are called to give to one another, a committed love, a love that's self-sacrificial, that that considers the other better than us. That's the word that Jesus uses in this passage when he says, I I want you to love your enemies and pray for them. Anyone ready to go home? I am. (laughs) I wanted to go home before I got here. Right? Right? It's self-sacrificial. It's committing yourself to their good. This is far beyond the idea of being tolerant to people. Like in our culture, we set the bar at tolerance. Like ah, I'll tolerate them as long as they don't get in my way or do my stuff or get you know. Jesus is saying no, no, no. Like, like following me is going to be far more than that. It is going to be agapeing your enemies. The word for enemies is a very broad term and it can include political enemies, personal enemies, religious enemies, and like I said, they're going to think about the Roman occupiers more likely than not. And he says, so love your enemies, and he says, pray for them, and again, it's another active imperative, be praying for them. This is an ongoing thing, this isn't just a, oh, I prayed for them once and then I let it go, it's like, no, be, have a posture of loving and a posture of praying for those who, you, who are in opposition to you. Pray for heart change. Pray for life change. So you, like, the goal isn't to pray for their demise. Like, Lord, smite them. Like, I know that's, there's imprecatory Psalms, and there's probably room for that somewhere, but really, like, the heart of Jesus here isn't that you would pray for their demise, but you would pray for their life change. You would pray for their hearts to change. Because remember, praying doesn't inform God. God is fully aware of everything that we're struggling with, fully aware of everyone who's in opposition to you. He's more aware of who's op- in opposition to you than, than you are. And so we're not informing God of stuff when we pray, but what we are doing is it's, it's changing us. It's, it's changing us. It shapes our heart differently. It helps us to think differently. It helps us to view people differently. So Jesus is saying in verses 43 and 44 is, Be steadfast in love and prayer for those opposed to you, even in the face of persecution. Verse 45, why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's basically the same way of saying that because that's the heart of your father. That's how he approaches his enemies. So in the same way that your father approaches his enemies is how we're supposed to approach our enemies. He loves and cares for those who are opposed to him. He causes the sun to rise and f- go down on good and evil. Right? He causes rain to come for those who are righteous and unrighteous. He doesn't, he doesn't just withhold. He's not like, it's not like only Christians get good things. He, this common grace extends to all the people of the earth, even the people who are most ardently opposed to him. Every atheist who is alive today woke up with breath in their lungs, given to them by the creator of all things. There's a reality that we have a heavenly father who has a disposition towards those opposed to him. And kind of to finish his thought, Jesus says in forty six and forty seven, if you if you love those who love you, what, what reward is there in that, right? The tax collectors do that, and if you only greet your brothers and sisters, like what are you doing that's any different? Like in essence, if you live in your echo chamber where you only are hanging out with and around people who who affirm you and uh, like you have the same ideas and the same thought process, like w- what makes you any different than the world around you? That's what everyone else does. Like, that's, that's not that's not a light that shines. That's. It's different. Like like the idea of loving those and and having a disposition of love and prayer towards those who are opposed to us is dramatically different than the world around us. Ain't no tax collectors doing that, right? And it, it gives us the opportunity to be salt and light. Which is our second point, right? The way of Jesus leads with love. To be like Jesus is to love and pray for those who stand in opposition to you. It's crazy to think that in this passage what Jesus is saying is that love and prayer are your primary weapons against your enemies. Again, not saying we don't fight for justice, not saying we don't fight for the marginalized. But it seems that Jesus' heart is different in, in what, we, like where, what our priorities are in this. The call from Jesus, he's not being metaphorical, is to seek The care and the good of our enemies, having a posture of love towards those opposed to us. And as we do it, we become like our Father, who has a posture of love perpetually towards his enemies. His desire was that all would be saved, that none would perish. That hasn't changed. It's still his heartbeat, it's still his desire. That everyone who is in opposition to him, who is apart from him, would come to know him as a good and gracious and loving Father. They would experience the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. That that would transform their lives. Like that's the heart of God, and we are His image. We shine Him to the world around us, or at least we're supposed to. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to look like. So how the heck do we do that? I think the one thing we need to do is remember and remind ourselves that our enemy isn't the real enemy. Like Whoever it is in, in opposition to us isn't the real enemy. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the brokenness. Sin is the problem. The enemy is the enemy. There is a real and active spiritual enemy who is doing everything he can to keep people from finding or knowing Jesus. And he's really good at what he does. And when we make people the enemy, we're working against what God's trying to do. Again, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is comfortable. I'm just telling you what it says. And I have to wrestle through it too because I have my own ideas and thoughts around how Jesus should have done this. Fortunately, he doesn't take my advice. But our enemy is not the enemy. Sin is the primary enemy. And what we're dealing with is people who are lost. Of course they're gonna make their political ideologies their God. They don't have a God. Of course they're gonna make their sexual orientation God because they don't have their identity in Christ. Why are we so surprised when the world acts like the world? Guys, seriously, seriously, We have to stop being offended that the world acts like the world. It is corrupted by sin. It can't see. And God desperately wants people who don't know him to come to know him, and the way he's doing that is through us. And if all we're doing is jumping on Twitter and screaming and yelling digitally, what good does that do? I mean, you feel better. You probably go to bed snugly in your bed and feel better about yourself. But is anyone coming any closer to the kingdom? Is anyone experiencing God's grace and his mercy in fresh and new ways? No. It's a high call that Jesus gives us in following him. I heard a guy say this this week in a book I'm listening to, and I stole it because it's too good, but I felt like integrity. I have to tell you, it's not original to me. He said this he goes, Look, doctors don't attack patients, they attack diseases. And, and often what we tend to do as the church is we tend to attack the patient rather than the disease. And we need to confess that and repent for it. And I get it. Like, seriously, I'm frustrated with where our country's going to. I'm angry about the injustice. I'm frustrated with the, the pushing of agendas that I feel. But I also know that This isn't the kingdom I live for. Jesus' kingdom. His, His kingdom transcends anything that I may walk through on this earth. And as challenging as it's becoming for us as we work down this road, ain't nothing like Rome. Hate to break it to you. Like Roman oppression. Like this is a cakewalk. We're sitting in this room. Ain't no one doing that in first century Rome. And so a little perspective for us would be valuable in reminding ourselves, like, wait a minute, like, we got it pretty good. Like, this room has heat and air conditioning, and it automatically adjusts. That's pretty good, right? Like, there's so much that we have that God has given us. We don't attack patients. We attack diseases, and sin is the disease. And part of how we can do that is by remembering our own brokenness and our own sin. That we were worthy of death. That, frankly, we were all God's enemy at one point. And it wasn't because you figured Jesus out that you're no longer his enemy. It's because out of his kindness and his grace, he opened up your heart to see him. And then you responded to him. And you experienced him. Experienced a love and a grace and a mercy that you, because you know you, you know how messy you are. You know how many stupid thoughts go through your head and bad things you've done. And yet still God loves you. God doesn't love you because of your best days. Jesus didn't die for you because of your best days. He died for you because of your worst days. So think about that. Like seriously, think about your worst days. Think about those things that have gone on in your head and your heart that no one else knows because you're like, I'd be on the streets, (laughs) right? We all have those things inside of us because sin is systemic. It's it's everywhere. It's in everything. It has corrupted everything. And the more that we remind ourselves of that, the more that we're not dwelling in our sin because we're now in Christ, but the more that we remember how far God has brought us in Christ, The softer our hearts become and the more open we are to loving those who might be in opposition to us, knowing that they're not the problem, it's the sin within them. That's what needs to change. And if my posture against them is, come on, bring it, they're never gonna hear about God's grace. It's not from me. They're not. They're not gonna hear about Jesus from me. Because all I've done is set myself up to fight. We follow Jesus who laid himself down for his enemies. The hands that he created crushed him. Think about that. The creator of all things embodies himself as a human being and allows his own creation to destroy that body and experiences the fullness of it. Why did he do it? So he could restore. So he could bring hope and healing. Because God loves the broken and the lost. He loves his enemies. And he's calling us to use the same story that he's writing in our lives to reach those around us, even those who are in opposition to us. In the same way that Jesus loves his enemies, us, we are to love our enemies. As we wrap up, look at verse 48. 48. I said ferdy, which is weird. <laughs> 48. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this verse always messed with my head for a long time. and And... Because I, th- I think perfection is like more, like how to be morally perfect then. Like God's morally perfect, so my job now is to work to be morally perfect. The word actually is wider than just moral perfection. It's really about completeness or wholeness. And, and I guess a better way maybe of, of, of helping us understand it kind of in our thought process would be, it, it's like be fully integrated with God's will the way your heavenly father is fully integrated within himself, like be completely for him, reflect his character, be like the Father. Right? That's what he, what Jesus talked about, which is a call to full surrender, to sacrificially follow him, to become more like him, to trust that he owns justice and that we can trust him with it. Like I don't have to take ownership of justice because justice belongs to the Lord. Knowing that I'm not going to do that perfectly, like I'm, I'm not going to always get it right, but I can be devoted. Like my heart's disposition and my devotion is to trust him and follow him, and if he says that I'm going to go to the ex- that I should go the extra mile, I'm going to go the extra mile. If he says that my disposition towards my enemies should be to love them first, then I'm going to love them first, and I'm going to trust that he is big enough to use that for his glory and his fame, even when it costs me. It means that we can't have it our way with Jesus. We just can't that we're called to live this radically upside-down life because that's how Jesus lived. He loved his enemies, and he laid his life down for them. Um, I'm going to share with you guys, a, a sim- there's a simple example of this that um, we've been talking with a, a guy named Paul Wilson. You're going to meet him in a second. Um, who's part of a ministry called Kairos. Kairos is a pr- prison ministry. And so what it does is it goes into prisons and, and helps, um, it cares for those who have been completely Set, pushed aside, you know, those who really were enemies, right? Those who really were evildoers, those, those who have done heinous and horrible things in this ministry, goes into prisons and shares the gospel through a meal, and, and lives get transformed and people get changed. And so, like, as we were talking about how we as a church can come alongside Paul, and this mis- message came up, it felt like they connected together. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to play a video for you, It's like a minute and some change. I just want you to watch the video, and then we're gonna, you're going to hear from Paul for a second, and, then, and how we as a church can partner with him and what he's doing.
1: I'm going to tell you about Kairos, this prison ministry that comes inside them walls to dead men. A lot of people say we dead men. I mean, I was just a mad man. Everybody got a story. but When you really get touched by God, that's when you know you got a real story. Well, my name is Tommy Fisher. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in the street gangs there. I got a lot of trouble. I ended up doing 20 years, 11 months flat in prison. I had an aggravated life sentence. I wasn't supposed to never get out. I ran the gangs in prison, you know, and I hurt a lot of men for some crazy reasons. I used to actually get Christians beat up because they say they wanted to come to Christ. That's how crazy and radical I was. But when they picked Kairos, they only picked the worst inmates on the unit because they want the roughest dudes on the unit, the fools, to get changed. And this ministry is actually going in here and showing this love and changing people like that. I'm gonna tell you the truth, I went for their food. I didn't go to get saved, but God had set me up. When I was sitting there, man, you know, I was listening to this dude talk. You know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus, just Jesus' presence, knocked him off that horse. I know for a fact, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I felt it like Paul felt it. And from that day forth, man, God has just been blessing my life. While I was in that prison, I got into this Thurapont Theological Seminary and Bible Institute. I got a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. I also went to college and I got me an LBT. I just thank God for God blessing me. I got a license to counsel, you know. And I really thank God for what he changed me into because I used to be a monster. I used to really be a monster. The only reason why I don't know if I ever killed a man because I never went back and asked the man who I shot was he dead. But I shot a lot of people and I heard a lot of people's lies. What ministries like Kairos can go inside them walls and show a man it's God's love. Man, if I can tell anybody, anybody about Kairos, man, it's changing lives. Because I got to get God back what he gave me. He gave me back my life. He gave me them years that the locust stole from me you gave them back to me and I'm thankful
0: so Paul thank you for your ministry thank you for being here this morning um Paul and his wife are part of Cornerstone. They're in uh, the quarters small group or uh, community group. And so maybe briefly just share a little bit about what you, like your area of ministry with Kairos here in North Texas and how you serve. Okay.
2: Uh, Kairos, um, I I really get touched. I've seen this, I don't know how many times, and it really touches me every time I see it. But uh, Kairos is uh, made up of three different areas. There's uh, Kairos inside, which I'm a part of. Kairos outside, which... uh, supports the uh, folks, typically wives and mothers and th- people like that of uh, men who are incarcerated and gives them support in that way, and in Kairos Torch, which uh, deals with young offenders, 25 and younger, and try to get a hold of them early that way, but Kairos in Inside, where I work, we go in uh, twice a year and uh, we pick 42 men like uh, Tommy talked about and uh, we have a weekend where we just... Uh, uh, present God's love to them in many different ways through food that he talked about uh, and just talking with them and being able to share with them what, that, uh, that God loves them uh, and wants to be able to forgive them and make a change in their lives. Some of these men that we, that we work with uh, will never be outside the prison. They will, they will live and die there. But God can touch them and make their life meaningful uh, right there, and so uh, that's that's what we've been a part of for about six years, and uh, I have some good friends. I get to get back. It, it's not just the weekend. We go in. Uh, I have an opportunity to go in uh, at least once a month, uh, what we call Second Saturday uh, Reunion, where we get to go in and to uh, visit with the uh, folks in the Michaels units. is where we uh, particular partic- uh, serve. Uh, Kairos is involved in about uh, about 50 prisons in Texas. It's the largest prison ministry in the world. It's in 37 states, 9 countries, and uh, uh, impacts lives uh, that makes a difference, in, in uh, not only in the prison, but as some of them get out and are be able to be a part of churches yeah. outside too. That's
0: awesome. So in November, you have one of these weekends coming yes, up. Yes. And so we as a church are, are partnering to try and help support you um, and Kairos as you guys are going in. And what are the two ways that we've defined that we can help serve? Okay. Yes,
2: uh, the, next, the next weekend is November the 3rd through the 6th. And if you will look in the uh, chairs in front of you, there are these different colored strips of paper like this. And if you'd be willing to partner with us and commit to pray... Between, on uh, November the 3rd through the 6th, you can put your name and, and uh, the city on there. We first name a, only. Yes, first name only. It's, it's on there. first name only in the city. And then we take these strips of paper and we make a prayer chain that we wrap the room in that we're with. And uh, it's very impactful to men t- that they can see a piece of paper that says Paul and Rockwall, is praying specifically for you this weekend, that God would touch you. And uh, we get these from all over the state of Texas to be able to make that prayer today. The other way that you can help, you know, money's always helpful. Uh, This is an all-volunteer ministry. Uh, Like I said, we're in uh, prisons all over the United States and in in the country. We only have uh, 12 paid employees and about 30,000 volunteers. So one of the ways that you can help would be to uh, sponsor a meal for $5. We have uh, some information on a table outside to where you could do that. And you could uh, sponsor one man uh, for the weekend for $150. That's so awesome. that's the two ways that you can help us thank this you. weekend.
0: Can we thank Paul for being here this morning for his ministry? Let me do this. I'm going <clears> to... <throat> Let me pray. Pray for the weekend, pray for you, and then we'll, we'll wrap up from there. Okay. Jesus, we thank you uh, for Paul and for his ministry, the ministry you've placed him in, and the work that it's doing in these prisons all over the country. And Lord, we specifically pray for what's going to happen in the Michaels unit in a couple weeks, Lord, that you would draw men to yourself, that, that as these guys, and even as Paul told me earlier about guys who had been in prison, who have gotten out of Michaels, who are going back to Michaels to share the gospel with guys, Lord, that is what a beautiful picture of redemption. What a beautiful picture of what you can do in the life and the heart of a human being. That the place of their, their probably deepest shame and brokenness becomes a place where they can go share salvation and hope. And Lord, we pray that you would transform um, the men in that prison who are going to be part of that meal. And pray you would provide in miraculous ways um, for everything that's going on. Um, for them pray for paul for all the other guys who are serving the the women who are serving all the people that you would strengthen them give them wisdom and guidance and we thank you so much for ministries like kairos that are making a difference around the world we thank you in your son's name amen Amen.
2: i forgot to say if if you're willing to fill these out we'll have folks with uh, baskets at the doors they'll be able to take those out uh, from you and then we've got a table. If you want more information, I'll be glad to talk with you about it. Cool. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Dustin. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, so you can fill that out and just drop it either in an offering box at the table or to help people to collect them. And then that's just going to be part of that prayer chain. Also, we did set up a thing in our giving portal. So if you go to our normal online giving platform and there's a pull down, you can have general offering. And then there's one there for Kairos Prison Ministry. So if you wanted to make a donation towards the meals for prisoners to help offset those costs, you're welcome to do that as well. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Um, Look, living upside down in the ways that, like, that story is an impossible story. Like, that's like that's that's absurd. It is ridiculous to think that, that God, that this could happen, right, outside of the work of God, outside of the work of the Spirit and Jesus. And it feels, I don't know, like I told you guys, like, it feels foolish. Like, this whole idea of loving my enemies and going the extra mile feels foolish, and yet... I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 1, right, where God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And and that's the reality of it. That is the good news is that God is so much bigger than kind of our rational way of thinking through things because it is undeserved. Because for you and I, it's undeserved too, right? Romans 5, 7 and 8 says this. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though so for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like that's, that's it. That's, that's the motivation. That's the heartbeat. That's what call, is calling us and causes us to be willing to look at Jesus and go, okay, whatever it means to follow you, I'll follow you. So as we're going to move into a time of worship, the band's going to come up um, and, like, like, each of us has to kind of reconcile this in our own hearts. Like, I have to assume that you guys have tension the way I have tension this week, the way that I've been wrestling through. Like, what does this mean? What does this look like? What about this? What about that? And we all have to kind of wrestle with those implications of what Jesus is teaching us and what it means for us to follow him when it comes to opposition and those who would be our enemies. And for some of us, it's going to bring, you know, conviction in very specific areas. And for some of us, it's going to be really easy. Like, oh, no, I know. Like, this is the spot, this is the area where I'm struggling with that. And for others of us, maybe it's not specific, but maybe it's just a matter of going, okay, Lord, Like I, I need you to change my heart because this I don't want to do this. Like this, isn't, like, this isn't what I signed up for. And so even in this time of worship, I would encourage you to, to pray and ask the Lord to, to, to reveal to you the areas that he wants to shape and mold inside of you. Like we all have a sense of justice. We all have a desire to be justified. Like, like that's all of us. But maybe the question to ask is, where Jesus, where are you asking me to lay down my rights? Where are you calling me to go an extra mile or to turn a cheek? And in a world that is polarized in a way that I, we just haven't seen in our lifetimes, What does it look like for me to be loving towards those who are opposed to me? And to desire to see them changed in a way that would have an impact for the gospel. Let's pray together and then we'll spend some time in worship. Jesus, we thank you for your words, sort of. (laughs) I know for me, this has been a hard one. Because I have a lot of opinions about how things should or shouldn't be. And I do have a strong sense of justice. And if I'm honest, that's probably a lot of arrogance and pride as well. And at the same time, Lord, I don't want anything to hinder my relationship with you or my desire to see others come to know you. And so I would ask you, Lord, to change my heart. And for each of us, Lord, that you would soften us to see what you're saying, to take you at your word. Because ultimately, Jesus, we do want to be like you. We want to be like you. We want to be people who follow after you with our whole hearts, whole minds, whole strength. We don't want to live divided lives. We want to live wholeheartedly for you. And we also know that that is impossible for us to do outside of the work of your spirit in us. So change us, mold us, shape us. Even in this time of worship, as we reflect on the cross, as we reflect on our own brokenness and how we were your enemy and how you have come to us, you pursued us, you reconciled us, you brought us into your family, you've forgiven our sins, you've washed us white as snow, you've done all of those things and that's not because we're cool and great and awesome, it's because of your grace and your mercy and you want the same thing for all the people of the world. So, Lord, use us to be a light in those spaces, whether it's at our workplace, at our home, in our prison, school, that we would love and pray for those around us, especially those who are opposed to us. Thank you that you are that kind of God for us. We give this morning to you. We give our lives to you in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand together.